invite you to open your Bible with me this morning to the book of Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Today we begin a new series through the book of Ephesians along with 1 John with Pastor Jeff on Sunday mornings. And if you like taking notes, I want to invite you to write this as the title of today's message, God's Plan for Your Life. God's plan for your life. Here in the book of Ephesians, we see the calling of God and the design of God for the church. And God's plan for our lives, God's will for our lives as an individual and as a person is taught to us through every chapter of this epistle. It teaches here Paul to the Ephesians the riches in Christ. He tells the believers that they are rich in Christ Jesus, spiritually rich, and that they don't have to live as poor beggars, bankrupt spiritually. (laughs) He encourages them to grow in Christ, to grow in one another in love and in unity. So we learn here through the book of Ephesians, God's purpose for the church and our personal identity in Jesus. There's an identity crisis taking place today in our world. And many a times the Christians are confusing themselves and their identity in their works, in the world, and in religion. But here in Ephesians, we're taught very clearly that our identity is not in the world. Our identity is in Jesus Christ. So we're going to look at here Ephesians and uh, some history and cultural background of Ephesus is that It was a city of great importance, the capital of the Roman province of Asia, known for its sensuality, its ambition, and its wealth. It was given over to idolatry and pagan worship, famous for the temple of the goddess Diana. In fact, that temple was one of the seven wonders of the world at the time, Diana being the goddess of fertility. And Paul here is writing this book from prison in Rome. Now, the Romans could imprison Paul, but they could not imprison the gospel. In fact, history tells us that that Paul, when he was chained in Rome and in different prisons, that he was chained there in his body in shackles in the prison, and they would send a guard to go and now watch over Paul. And he would introduce himself and and share with him the gospel. And every two hours, every couple hours, they had to change out the guard because the guard kept getting saved. (laughs) And they would bring in a new guard and Paul was there on the floor. He said, hi, my name's Paul, what's your name? Let me tell you about Jesus Christ. And then that guard would be saved as well. (laughs) But that is the power of God until salvation, amen. That is the power of God until salvation. So he's writing to a very large, influential church. These are Paul's headquarters here in Ephesus, where he pastored three years, and there he left Priscilla and Aquila, a gifted couple to minister. We are introduced to them in the book of Acts. Later then, we see that he sent his young disciple Timothy, a young pastor, to their lead and pastor that church and that flock in Ephesus uh, for a time. Now, Ephesus was that church that we learn of in 
Revelation chapter 2, as we study to the seven churches of Revelation, who is commended for not tolerating false teachers, but also exhorted to recapture their first love. This was that church. So Paul here is writing to encourage, to admonish the believers there in regards to their redemption, in regards to their resurrection, that they were dead in their sins, but now they're alive in Jesus Christ. And then to remind them of their responsibility. And he's encouraging them, telling them that we obey him, God, not to earn grace. We don't obey out of now earning grace, but we are obey or our obedience is out of a response to grace that already has been given to us. It was John Phillips, the commentator, that said this about Ephesians. That Ephesians is the Grand Canyon or the eagle's eye view of the Bible. Why? Because it oversees all the major doctrines of the Bible. Someone else said that this is God's commentary of the New Testament, the book of Ephesians. It's so rich. You find in one book the entire doctrines of the Bible. Now, as a way of introduction, I want to give you two key verses that help you understand and divide this book. First, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, it says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. What is it, the first doctrine that we're learning in the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians? The doctrine of justification. That we are now right with God, we have peace with God, our salvation is by faith alone, through grace alone, and not through our works, and not through human striving. For by grace you have been saved, it's not of yourselves, there's nothing that we can do to get him to love you more than what he already does. His love is based off of his goodness, not our personal works. That is our justification. But then he also talks about our sanctification in the later chapters. Ephesians 5, 8 says this, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. We once were in darkness, walking according to the prince of the power of the air with our minds that were given over to the things of this world, but now we are walking as children of the light. That is our sanctification, the process of us becoming holy, the application of the doctrine and the truth. Why is he teaching us this? Because we need to learn to change the inner person and the character. So the book of Ephesians, it's very fundamental in its distinction for us to learn and practice our new life and the privileges that are given to us as believers and encourage us to live a life that patterns God's character. So that there in that pagan city, Ephesus, the church would not be conformed to that dark world, but that they would be transformed and live out their calling. So from chapters 1 through 3, we learn doctrine or riches. It's the central doctrine of the Christian faith. For three chapters, Paul explains these to us. And then from chapters 4 to chapter 6, we learn duty. Doctrine and then duty, responsibility. How are these spiritual truths reflected in the Christian faith? Now that we've learned and we've established the grace of God, from chapters 4, 5, and 6, we learn how do we live them out. He does this because you must know what God has done for you before you can do anything for him. 
See, the frustration oftentimes comes when we want to do things for God without knowing what he has done for us first. So he says, realize what he has done for you before you try to do anything for him. And he explained this when he talks about unity. We're going to learn about unity. We're going to learn about spiritual maturity in the book of Ephesians, about the gifts of the Spirit, about the ministry. We're going to learn about marriage. So husbands, make sure you make it to that week. (laughs) Marriage, family, and also spiritual warfare. The blessings, the benefits, and the battle of the believer. Would you remember that and write that down this morning? The blessings, the behavior, and the battle of the believer. The blessings, the behavior, and the battle of the believer. And God's plan for your life begins with this, the will of the Father. So let's go to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1, as we learn about God's plan for our lives as it concerns the will of The Father, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. To the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Christ Jesus to himself according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you because... Your word teaches us that by grace we have been saved and that we are rich in you, Jesus. We are rich in Christ. So, Lord, teach us to walk, Lord, in the benefits. Lord, teach us that it would change the way we live. And, Lord, strengthen us as we go through spiritual warfare. We thank you, Lord, because you have a plan for our lives. You've designed that beforehand. And that we would learn it and walk in it. In Jesus' name we pray. And together we said, amen. Ephesians 1 verse 1 says this, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Now notice as he opens up this letter to the Ephesians, here Paul identifies himself as the author. He says, from Paul. But he says, an apostle of Jesus Christ. What is an apostle? A messenger. This is Paul's calling a sent one. Or write this down next to that word apostle, one who is sent. Paul was commissioned of Jesus Christ and by Jesus with a special authority to preach the gospel of grace. And he was an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. It was in Ephesians, in 1 Corinthians, and 2 Corinthians even that he gives us the true description of an apostle. Who is a true apostle? One who has received the commission of Jesus and secondly, one that has now witnessed the resurrected Christ. So Paul here was given a calling by God to lay the foundation for the church by preaching and teaching. This is so foundational. He had the obligation to teach the word of God and to, to seek to build the believers in the faith by teaching on these truths. So he says, I'm Paul, an apostle. But he notice what he says here, by the will of God. Can you say that with me out loud? by the will of God. 
I want you to underline that in your Bible because it, here it refers to God's will, not man's will. So here what Paul is saying, I am an apostle of Jesus Christ, not because of man or not according to man, but according to God. He's serving the Lord because God has called them to be sent and to teach his word. Notice here, he doesn't need a position to serve. He doesn't need an opportunity to serve. He's serving the Lord out of obedience to a calling. There are times in our lives that we think and we say, well, Lord, if you would just open that door or if I would just receive that promotion or if that door would just be open to me and I had that title, then I would serve you and glorify your name. <laughs> well, notice here that our calling does not come from man. It comes from God. Man can give you a position, but only God can give you a calling. And he understood that. He was called to be in God's will. This is God's will for my life. I don't need a position. I'm serving out of obedience. I'm serving because God called me to do this. I'm becoming all that I am, Paul is saying, because of God's will for my life. Now just imagine if you would look at that verse there and, and substitute Paul's name for your name. And that which God has called you to do maybe is a mechanic or a a, a teacher, a secretary, a housewife, whatever it would be. And, and you would put your name, John, a mechanic, by the will of God. Maria, a teacher, by the will of God. Now, Sally, a secretary, by the will of God. Paul here is reminding us that he wanted to be all that God wanted him to be, and he wanted to do all that God wanted him to do. Now remember that, that we ought to be everything that God wants us to be and do everything that God wants us to do. The mistake oftentimes, the sin is to try to be something that God didn't tell you to be <laughs> or try to do something that God never called you to do. You know what that's called? In one word, striving, <laughs> striving. And when you try to be something that God didn't call you to be or try to do something that God didn't call you to do, you become very discouraged. You become frustrated, you're miserable trying to open doors that God hasn't opened for you or he hasn't called you to do. So what is he saying? I am what I am by the will of God and that is what is important. Where does he find his identity? In the will of God. I am what I am by the will of God. In fact, he's teaching us even in verse five, in verse nine and in verse 11, he refers to the will of God. Why? Because he's teaching us to be people that are living in the center of God's perfect will. Living in the center of God's perfect will. Sometimes we think, well, look at that person. They work at church. That, that must be God's highest calling. Or, or they're a pastor. That's God's highest calling. No, that is not God's highest calling. God's highest calling for your life is that which he has equipped you for and that which he has called you to be. <laughs> Know that. God's highest calling for your life is that which he has equipped you to do and that which he has called you to be. And we ought to never say, well, you know what, I'm a second-rate heavenly citizen because I don't have the calling that that person has. No, well, God has called you to a specific place with specific gifts, and we have to enjoy them and be grateful for God's will for our lives. And then learn this, that nothing should ever get in the way or interfere 
and be very careful that nothing interferes or opposes God's will in our life. That we would surrender to God's will for our lives. So he says this, and in the very first verse, he also writes to who he's addressing this letter. First to the local church. And he says this, to the saints who are in Ephesus. What is that word, saint? It's referred, and we know that Greek word, hagios. Hagios, a saint. It it means someone that's separated or set apart for God's service. It speaks of one that is sanctified or, or called to live a pure life, notice this, in a pagan world. That is a saint. One that is called to live a pure life in a pagan world. One that has been born again. And they've been taken out of the world. And guess where they have been placed in? Placed in Jesus or placed in Christ. We may be in the world, but Jesus reminds us in John 17, verse 16, we are not of the world. So these are the saints, those that are not of the world now, the believer that maybe physically is in the world, but spiritually we belong to heaven now. And what does he call them? Saints. He gives them now this title. He refers to them as a saint. We've known through tradition and church history that people have given now names or reverence or respect to certain saints in church history, right? And they call them saints, but the church doesn't make saints. Only the Lord makes saints through the blood of Jesus. It is the Lord that makes saints. It is those that have been born again by the power of the Holy Spirit that are saints. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, what does Paul say? To the church of God, which is at Corinth, and to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. <laughs> We're all saints today. If you put your trust in Jesus, if you've been born again, guess what? You're a saint. You're living in Jesus. Someone once said, you're either a saint or you ain't. You're either a believer or you're not a believer. Someone once time, I asked a person one time, what would you consider yourself if somebody asked you, you know, if, you know, what you believe in or what faith you follow? And they told me, what I would say I'm a non-practicing Christian. Well, I said, there's nothing like that. There's no such thing. You're either a Christian or you're not a Christian. You're either a saint or you're not. And he says to the saints, the local church in Ephesus, to those that were found there that are following And being faithful to the Lord. And then he says to the larger church. The local church and then the larger church. Verse 1. And the faithful in Christ Jesus. And the faithful in Christ Jesus. Now I want you to underline in Christ. There where you see it in your Bible. Because he's talking about those that were not mere professors of faith. But those that were possessors of faith. Not just professing of faith, but possessing of faith. What does it mean to possess of faith? That you've surrendered yourself. You've surrendered your heart. You've surrendered your mind. You've surrendered your will now. You're a faithful saint now. But faithful in what? Faithful in Christ Jesus. Faithful in Christ even in a corrupted world. Faithful amid the temptation of pollution and of perversion. You are still faithful. And I want you to know something this morning that when, when you have faith in Christ Jesus, you will keep the faith with Christ Jesus. And this is exactly what he's saying. Those that are in Christ, I'm writing to those, the larger church as well. Now, in Christ is the most frequently used phrase in the book of Ephesians. In fact, he uses it 
Almost in every chapter, over 27 times in only six chapters, the words in Christ are now given reference to. And it reminds us as believers, even those there in Ephesus, that all we are, all he has done for us, and all that he will do for us is in Christ. Everything that you are, everything that he has done for you, everything that he will do for you are in those two words, in Christ. Can you say those with me? In Christ. In fact, in verse 1 it says, Christians are saints in Christ. In verse 3 of this chapter, we are blessed in Christ. In verse 4 of this chapter, we're chosen in Christ. Verse 5, we're adopted by Christ. Verse 6, we're lavished with love in Christ. Verse 7, redeemed and forgiven in Christ. Verse 11, we're participants in God's plan in Christ. And verse 12 and 13, we're glorified and sealed in Christ. Everywhere you see those words as we go through the book of Ephesians, circle those words to remind you that everything that we are, everything that he has done for us, and everything that he will do for us, it is all in the Son, Jesus. So then he goes on in verse 2, as he greets them. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. Now he's saying, may the grace of God, his unmerited favor, or this Greek word charis, his unmerited favor now, and his peace, with his, which is the calmness of heart and of the mind, the shalom of God, be upon you. This is incredible because he refers to this greeting or he opens this greeting in most of his letters, grace and peace. And why does he do it in this order? The order is very important because before we know the peace of God, we must personally experience the grace of God. <laughs> there are many times that you know of people that don't know Jesus Christ and their struggle, they, they battle, they, they have this burden in their mind and in their heart because they have no peace. And the reason they have no peace, they may have physical riches, but spiritually they're poor, is because they're missing the experience of the grace of God. They haven't experienced God's forgiveness. And it's not until the believer, it's not until even the unbeliever experiences the grace of God personally that they can truly know the peace of God. So to accept his grace is to know his peace. To accept his grace is to know his peace. And what happens when you experience his grace and know his peace? There's no more striving. You're not looking in your own goodness to be saved. You're not looking in your own works to be saved. You have an assurance of your salvation that you have indeed been reconciled to God. Throughout the entire Bible, we have the blessings and the benefits that are ours as believers because of this word grace. That it was because of God's favor. It wasn't because you came to church. It wasn't because you raised your hand. It was because of the grace of God. Just imagine, if it, wasn't, if it was to do with us, it wouldn't be grace. It is the grace of God that saves us. I'm going to give you a few now verses that teach us the benefits of God's grace. In fact, Ephesians 2.8 that we saw already speaks of how it's God's grace that is given to us for salvation. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is the grace of God that saves us. But it's also the grace of God that justifies us in Romans 3.24 being justified freely by his grace. It makes us right with God. We have peace with God because of the grace. 
In Romans 5 verse 20, it speaks of our victory over sin, that we are no longer in bondage to the power of sin, but where sin abounded, guess what abounded? Grace abounded much more. In 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 1, Paul tells Timothy that we have the power to testify because of grace. Be strong now in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Be strong in the grace. We also have the spirit of generosity because of grace. 2 Corinthians 8, 7. See then that you abound in grace also. With the spirit of generosity. We have the ability to stand in the face of opposition. It's 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 12. This is the true grace in which you stand. And then finally, that verse that we all know, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, we have strength in suffering because of grace. What did Paul say? My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. It is the grace of God. It teaches us. It shows us our need for the grace of God, for salvation, for strength, for victory, ability to stand, that we would be justified. The spirit of generosity all have to do with grace. Now notice what he says, grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Where is this coming from? Where's well, coming from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is where the authority came in which Paul spoke about. He spoke about this. He spoke about the authority that came from the Father and from the Son, as well as the blessings of grace and peace to all the believers. And he speaks of this relationship as, as God being our Father and as Jesus being our Savior, but then he also calls him Lord. How many times have you seen that word Lord in the Bible and we think of it that that's the name of God? Lord is not the name of God. Lord is a title. And when we come to know Jesus Christ as Savior, we then make him Lord. You know what Lord means? That you are his servant, that he is your master. In fact, Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do what I say? So when we talk about the grace of God, he's saying, as you have received his grace, be an obedient servant. As you've received his grace, be an obedient servant. And now from verses 3 all the way to verse 6, we're going to see the spiritual blessings that are given to you as a believer. What are those spiritual blessings? The spiritual blessing and the source of all our blessing, verse 3 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be. What does that mean? Praise be to God. It's a worship statement. In other words, it can be translated as to celebrate with praises. Blessed be to God to celebrate with praises or overflowing praise. How do we bless our Father? How is it that we bless God? Well, we bless God when we offer Him praise and also when we offer Him thanksgiving. You bless God when you offer Him praise and thanksgiving, and that is our supreme duty as a believer. God has given us that duty that, that we would worship Him. We don't do only worship because we like to sing. We worship because that is our duty, because he's worthy of it, and we're blessing God through it. Blessed be, verse 3, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And notice, that's the source of our blessing. It's coming from the Father in whom we praise. But the nature of our blessing, it speaks of it in verse 3 now, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. Now, circle that in your Bible, every 
spiritual blessings. God has called you by his will. He has a plan for your life. Understand this first, that he has blessed you. The blessings are coming from God's grace. And the nature of the blessings are coming from the Father who has blessed us. Now, who is us? The saints, the faithful to the Lord. It's the saints, it's those believers that are eligible for his blessings. It is those saints that are eligible for the benefits that come in these blessings. And what kind of blessings are they that that God has now blessed us with? Notice it says this, every spiritual blessings. Or he means this, all the blessings that are in the spirit. What is it that God does as we come to him? He blesses us with every spiritual blessing. There are too many times the talk of material blessings. We start to pursue, we start to chase material blessings and temporary blessings with a very temporal perspective in the life that we live in. And there's not enough talk or enough praise of thanking God for the spiritual blessings because he says here from chapters one all the way to chapter three, he speaks of every spiritual blessing that God has given you. The spiritual blessing of sanctification, the spiritual blessing of justification that we are complete in him. Colossians chapter two, verse 10 says this, and you are complete in him. You're fully complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. Where are these blessings at? In heavenly places. Now, is that where you're looking for your blessings at today? Or are you looking for your blessings somewhere else? Or in something else? They're in heavenly places, and notice, they're in Christ Jesus. These blessings belong to his children by faith in Christ Jesus. And it says they're in heavenly places because we belong to heaven. We're citizens of heaven. (laughs) These blessings are are more higher. They're, They're more secure than the earthly blessings. The spiritual is more important than the material. So there are certain blessings and riches that God already has for you. But I want you to know and understand something, that there cannot be blessings without battles. There cannot be blessings without battle. And he's going to speak about the battle in the believer's life. It's called spiritual warfare. In order to inherit those blessings, you're going to go through spiritual warfare. Why? Because the enemy will do everything in his power to rob you of those blessings. The enemy will do everything in his power to rob you of the spiritual blessings, of the love, of the joy, of the unity that he speaks of in this book. Think about Joshua in the Old Testament. When the nation of Israel had inherited the promised land, the blessing, what did he have to go through in order to inherit that promised land? He had to go through battles. He had to go through battles. But the Lord taught them, the nation of Israel, that they were to move forward by faith and obedience. This book is going to teach us what God has done for us so that we can move forward by faith and obedience. In fact, what he's saying, the the enemy is already being defeated. And Christ is our heavenly Joshua or Yeshua in the Old Testament now that leads us into victory. Christ is leading us to possess everything that has been promised to us in him by the Father. Do you see that? Do you notice that? It is the blessings that God has for your life. And notice as he says this in verse 4 now, speaking of his eternal plan. God has blessings for you. 
Not only does he have a blessing for you, but as he has that blessing, he had something in mind and he chose you. God's eternal purpose and his plan. It's incredible to know that God, before he created us, he had a plan for our lives. He had a purpose in his design. And when he created us, notice what it says this in verse 4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. This is an incredible verse here. Just as he chose us in him, God's eternal purpose and God's eternal plan. What did he do? He chose us. That's the Greek word ekloho. That means to elect. God chose us or elected us or to call us forth. And who did he do that for? Who did he choose? It says us. Who's us? Those that are in him. He chose us to be and called to himself. He chose us in himself, not in ourselves. He didn't choose us to be in ourselves. He chose us in him. This is his sovereignty, that salvation begins with the grace of God. And when did that begin? Before the foundation of the world, before he made the world. Why? Because God is outside of time. We... we, Think of time as as something that is passing, but God is eternal. He's outside of time. In his foreknowledge, because he's outside of time, he has chosen us, those that are saved, and called us to himself. Who's us? The saints, the faithful that are to the Lord. Some people say, well, if God chose us to him, does it mean that he chose others not to be to him? (laughs) Well, the Bible doesn't say that, nor does it teach that, does it? In fact, in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, it says this, For that time Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. God has also in his sovereignty given you the ability to respond to his grace. So it's God's sovereignty that he foreknew and he chose you as you were saved and believed and trusted in him. He called you to himself, the saints, And then it's man's responsibility, it's your responsibility to respond to that grace as well. But why did he elect us? Why did he choose you to himself? He chose you to himself, it says it in verse 4, before the foundation of the world, because he foreknew here that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. That was the purpose, that was the result of his choosing (laughs) Oftentimes we think that the Lord chose me because he just wants me to spend time with him. Well, yes, he does. But he also chose you so that you would respond to his grace. He chose you for a higher standard of living. Would you remember that? For a holy standard of living. In fact, it says he chose us before the foundation of the world that we should be. There's the key that unlocks that verse. Us and that we should be. That we should be what? That we should be holy. (laughs) He called you to himself. He chose you that you would be set apart, reserved for God, and reserved for his service. He called you so that you would be now pure, undefiled from any type of sin. Not only did he call you to be holy, notice what he also calls you or chooses you for. He also calls you who have responded to grace, he calls you to be blameless. That you to be without blame. That means to be unblemished, to be morally unspotted before him in love. That you to walk a holy life, a blameless life, walking in love. Why? Because holiness and blamelessness are nothing without love. 
holiness and blamelessness are nothing without love. What is the goal? To be more like Jesus. And Christ's likeness is our goal. And the driving force of Christ's likeness is love. We pursue holiness. We pursue now this blamelessness through love. His infinite love for us and our increasing love for him. So why were we called? Why were we chosen? Not simply for salvation. We are chosen for sanctification. We are called to be holy. I love what Warren Worsby says about this when he says this, holiness is the very purpose of our election. So God ultimately is the only evidence, or holiness is the only evidence of our election is a holy life. How is it that you know that God has called you? Because you're living a holy life. He has called you to holiness in Romans 12, verse 1, says this, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, because of the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is good and acceptable, the perfect will of God. What has God called us for? Holiness. God has called the saints, the faithful in the Lord. He's called us to be holy and to be blameless before him in love. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, the grace that does not change my life will not save my soul. The grace that does not change my life will not save my soul. You know what the grace of God does? It changes your life. And know, you know for certain that you have salvation. It has saved your soul. But God not only has called you, notice, God's calling you to holiness today because he has a plan for your life. And he has to call you to holiness in order to accomplish that plan. Would you remember that today? God has called you to holiness in order to accomplish his purpose, his plan. So it says in verse 5, having predestined us to the adoption as sons by Christ Jesus to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. Now God decided this in advance. He decided that he was going to call us to holiness. He decided this in advance as he predestined us. That word means he foreordained us to a plan. It means to appoint. It means to determine beforehand. God beforehand had a plan. It was his perfect will for your life. In fact, that word predestined, it simply means to mark out a horizon. Just imagine looking at a picture or a scenery and marking out the horizon far out in the distance. You mark out the horizon where it is. Where predetermined means to predetermine or to mark out beforehand his plan and his purpose for your life. So God has called you to holiness in order to accomplish his purpose and plan for your life. And how did he do that? By adopting you as a son. <laughs> now what does it say here? Adopting us as sons by Christ Jesus to himself. This is so incredible that God has a plan for us and in his plan it is that we would be adopted into his family and have a relationship with him as sons. But sons here not only refers or speaks of a membership in the family of God, it not only means membership. Sons here also means maturity. Would you remember that? Sons means maturity. Sons has to do with maturity in the family of God. 
And it refers to the position that we occupy in God's family as adult sons, those that are growing up to maturity in Christ. He's adopted you so that you can grow up in maturity. This entire epistle, he's going to tell you and lay out a foundation of the riches of his grace so that we grow up in maturity. In fact, have you seen maybe driving by a construction site or down the road a a truck, a construction truck that says Henry Brown and what? And Sons. Or it would say a different name, and Sons. And we know that Henry Brown's sons are partners in the father's business. In fact, they've grown up and they've assumed position. They've assumed authority and responsibility in the father's business. You never see a sign that says Henry Brown and his children. No, it says Henry Brown and sons. So what is he teaching us here as far as sons? That God has predestined us to a plan of maturity, to grow up in his will. Who is it that are predestined? Those that are saved. Remember that, please. Those that are saved. This word is not used in connection to the lost. Predestination has to do with purpose to those that are in the family adopted in God's family as sons. People have a hard time with these words election and predestination. Well, let me give it to you very simply. Election has to do with people who God called for holiness. Predestination refers to purpose. Why did God call you? Because of his will for your life. So these verses speak of God's entire plan for your life, that he called you to holiness in order to accomplish his plan that he foreknew before the world began. The New Living Translation reads it this way. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Christ Jesus. This is what he wanted to do, and he gave him great pleasure. (laughs) He gave him great pleasure. Why? Because God's plan has always been his purpose, his intent for our lives, has always been to bring us to spiritual maturity. To bring us to spiritual maturity. See, this word here, called, teaches us what we were chosen from. The family of God, our faith, saints. But this word predestination talks to us about what we were chosen for, and that's the plan of God, to become more like the image of Jesus. It's in that verse, Romans chapter 8, verse 28, that we all know, and we know that all things work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. But what about the next verse that that gives us and gives reference to this doctrine? For whom he foreknew, who he knew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. What do you do? He predestined you and I to be conformed to the image of his son. God has a special purpose and plan that we would be conformed more into the image of Jesus. And you know why he did all of this? In verse five, it tells us, for the good pleasure of his will, because it pleases him. (laughs) Your obedience, your faith, when we collectively come to the Lord in sanctification and holiness, according to the good pleasure of his will, again, there it says, it says he wanted to do this because he desires this, and, and it gives him great pleasure to see you walking in obedience and in faith. That is God's pleasure, to see his sons and daughters walking in obedience and faith. And how does he say this in verse 6? To the praise of the glory of grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. 
Praise God for his grace, he's saying. Praise God that it's been not because of what we deserve. Because we don't deserve his grace. What we deserve is judgment. A lot of times we think, well, I don't deserve this. But if, if you really want what you deserve, it's judgment. So please, don't pray for that. You know what we ought to ask for the Lord? Ask for his grace. Because it meets you in every time of need. It gives you the strength in every time of need. When we're struggling with sin, it gives you the strength. When we're in weakness, it gives you the strength. When it comes to our holiness, it directs you his grace and it pulls you into the Father. It is the goodness of God, almost as we think of the prodigal son who saw the goodness of the Father that was running towards the son now and he saw the grace of the Father that he didn't deserve that grace and he ran into the Father's now purpose and plan. You see, this is what he's referring to and it brings them great pleasure. It's not what we deserve. Grace is God's favor as a gift. And you know what the grace of God did here in verse six? By which he made us. Again, us, the saints. Those that are faithful in Christ Jesus. He made us accepted in the beloved. Now aren't you glad that we're not accepted because of our works? It's not because of how good you are because the Bible says we're not good. <laughs> it's not because you came to church. It's not because how many verses you can recite He's accepted you in his son. He's made you accepted in the beloved. What is the beloved? The one he loves. He has made you accepted because of the one he loves. We are accepted in the presence of the father because of the beloved son. Because of the beloved son, the only begotten beloved son. You see this word accepted, write this next to your Bible. It means the word belong. <laughs> belong. This is a word, and this is something that everyone is created with a sense of wanting belonging. We want to belong. We want to belong to a family. We want to belong to friends. We want to belong to a community, something, a belonging. And God has given us that void. He's created us with that sense or that void, that emptiness of wanting to belong so that we would crave belonging. It would only be satisfied in fellowship because of the grace of God. So he has caused you to belong now in a relationship with the Father because he's shown now his grace through the sacrifice of the Son because of Jesus. Now we belong to the Father. There are often times that we struggle with wanting to belong in different places of this world. We want to be accepted. We want to be approved by other people, but our acceptance to God is much more important than how we ought to be accepted before people. There are too many times that as believers, we struggle with wanting the approval of man instead of the approval of God. And we have to come to Jesus Christ because know this, we will not be accepted in our own self. We desperately need the acceptance of God. And God will not accept us by ourselves in his presence. We need to come in Jesus. God will not accept us in our strength, in his presence. We need to come in the Son. Because of our sinful nature, we are unacceptable to him because his holiness rejects sin. But because we're in the beloved, the Son, Jesus Christ, because the blood of Jesus washes us from every sin, now we are accepted, now we're adopted, now we belong in the very presence of the Father. How many of you guys can praise God for that this morning? 
Colossians chapter 1 verse 13 says this, he has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love. What, did, what has he done because of his grace? Delivered us from the power of darkness. Delivered us from the power of darkness. Maybe today you want to run towards the grace of God because that's the only way that you can have deliverance from the power of darkness. You want to experience the riches of his grace so that you know his peace. And you're here, you're saying, well, I need that peace that the Bible speaks about, the riches of his grace. I want to experience now every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. I want to be delivered from the power of darkness. Well, that power of darkness that holds on to your life until you run to the grace of God. Let's go ahead and pray.